You know, in the series that I've called more, we've sort of begun with acknowledging that our culture comes at our understanding of the stuff we have, whether it's money or houses or cars or the things that fill our houses, whatever it may be, saying and assuming that more is always better, right? And we're told that message over and over, that the more stuff we have, the more it will show that we're happy, and the more it will show we're successful. The more money we have in the bank says that we are successful as well. And we've been thinking about what the Psalms have to say about more and how they show us that God really is more and how that satisfies us in ways that our stuff never could. Now, today we want to continue in this same thought and think about this concept that our culture is based on accumulation, but I want to come at this from a very different direction from what we've done over the past few weeks. I want us to think about this. What happens when we find that in our lives we're going to have less and not more? I mean, the culture says more money, more house, more car, more stuff. More of everything is always better, and then we find out that there is some area of our life when we're going to have far less, where there is going to be disappointment, where we may not have what everyone else has, and that can really bring up some resentment and maybe some anger with God, and we have to grapple with that. Our culture tells us more, and we've got less. What do we do with that? And that can come at us from lots of different directions. I've, I've talked about this before, but early in our marriage, Leanne and I dealt with a long season, years of infertility. And, and we really thought at one point, hey, you know what? We're just, we're not going to have kids. And many of you know our story and that we have two wonderful daughters and we are blessed in so many ways with them. But during that time, which again, seemed like it lasted forever and had no known conclusion it was hard because we looked around and our friends were having kids and they were beginning to grow up and they were blessed with all that. And we were wondering, okay, why not us? Right? What's wrong with us that we're not having? Why is God denying something that we assumed would be part of our lives? It just didn't seem fair. Everyone else had more and we had less. And if I'm candid with you, there were some real serious questions for God, right? Like, God, why? Why is this not happening? Why are you absent from this? Why aren't you doing something about this? Doctor's appointments and waiting, and it just seemed like it would never end. Now, maybe you've been through that, but in a different area of life. It, can, it really can be so many different areas of life. Maybe in school, you got kids who are told over and over, man, enjoy these years, high school or college, because these are the best years of your life. And some of our students are going, if this is the best, I'm not looking forward to the rest, right? Because it's not that great. Everyone else is having fun, but I'm not. Or maybe you're in a job that pays the bills, but it's not what you plan to be doing. Or you're in a job and everyone else is progressing, everyone else is being promoted, everyone else is doing more, and you're still doing less. Or maybe there's been a dream in your life, you've been looking for that person that you're gonna spend your life with. You've been looking for a spouse and it hasn't happened. And you look around and everyone else seems to have that and you don't. Or maybe it looks like everyone else's marriage is happy and they're living a fairy tale and your marriage is a wreck. And you say, God, 
Why? Or there's not enough money? Or there's chronic pain or sickness and you see what everyone else is doing with their money and their health and you can't do it and it just doesn't seem fair. And in those moments when we're grappling with that frustration and anger and questions for God, we may be saying, God, this just isn't fair and why are you doing this? Or we might want to say that, but we don't because we're afraid to. And so we're left sort of with all these questions and frustrations and anger and maybe even depression and we just push it all down and we don't deal with it. What should we do with it? Well, today I want us to think about that. And as we have in this series, we're going to turn to the book of Psalms. So today I'd like us to turn to Psalm 89. And if you don't have your Bible in front of you, pull one out of the pew in front of you because I want you to sort of see this it's on page 478. If you don't know how to navigate a Bible, that's okay. Psalms is usually right in the middle. Psalm 89 is where we are, though. Now, we're going to walk through this. This psalm is too long for us to read all of it this morning, okay? So I want to get sort of the structure and the ideas that are there by reading just a few select verses from this psalm. And it has a really careful structure. So we begin in Psalm 89, and we're going to look at the first couple verses to sort of set the stage for everything that follows. Okay, so here we go. Now, and before I do that, uh, two weeks ago, we said sometimes there's a little prologue before the psalm that tells us some clues about it, and we can use that to understand. This one says, a maskil of Ethan the Ezraite. Here's the deal. We're not really sure what a maskil is, and we don't know who Ethan is. So it's of absolutely no help to us. So we'll just move on from there. So verse 1. I will sing of the Lord that we talked about this. This is Yahweh, the personal name for God. I will sing of Yahweh's great love Forever, with my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. Now, we hear those words and we say, you know what, that sounds, that sounds like the book of Psalms, right? I mean, that's praise language. And so many of the Psalms open with language just like this. So it's pretty typical of all that. Here's a psalmist who says, I'm going to praise God. I'm going to worship him forever. And there's a couple reasons he's going to do that. And there's two really important words that show up both in verse 1 and verse 2, and they're paired together five times throughout the psalm, and they show up separately in a couple other places. So these words really do help us understand the psalm. The first word is the word that we see translated love here in verses 1 and 2. Okay, hugely important word in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word is hesed, okay? And we, we know the Bible has different words for love. In the New Testament, we talk about agape love, discussed that a few weeks ago. There's romantic love. There's sort of brotherly love, but that's all New Testament. In the Old Testament, there's a little bit more limited language of Hebrew that doesn't give us as many words for love. But here's the thing. When we see this word hesed in the Bible, it is love, sometimes translated kindness. The older translations may say loving kindness, all right? But at its core, it is the love that God has for human beings that he's called into a relationship. Last Sunday, we talked about how God chose to deal with his people in the form of a covenant. It is God, as king, calls his subjects us to him as his people. And he says, I'm going to make a covenant, an agreement, and here's the deal. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. And what I expect are these things. And he lists them out. 613 commands in the Old Testament for his people. 
Sometimes God made covenant with a people, Israel. Sometimes with a person, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Moses. All those people have a covenant made to them. I'm your God. You're my person. We're going to work together. I am binding myself to you. This word hesed is all about that binding relationship. That God loves the person or the people he has chosen so much that he will always be faithful to them. But that's our second word. It talks about love and faithfulness in both verses. The word could be translated loyalty. So God loves us in this covenant relationship and he is faithful to his promises. So this God keeps his promises. And because of God's hesed love, this covenant relationship, I am binding myself to you. And because God keeps his promises, the psalmist says, I'm going to praise this God, Yahweh, the God of the people of Israel forever. Okay, we got it set up. Then it launches into a section where it says, you know what, the way I know God as I look around creation and what I see is a powerful God who is active and engaged in this creation and creation itself shows me the love, the hesed and faithfulness of this God, Yahweh. And that section goes on for a while. Here's a sampling from verse five. The heavens praise your wonders, Yahweh, your faithfulness, there's our word faithful, too, in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can compare with Yahweh? Who is like Yahweh among the heavenly beings? It is as if the psalmist is saying, if there were an assembly of all the gods of the peoples who surround us, if all the gods got together, now the message of the Old Testament is those gods don't even exist, but if they did, the greatest one in the assembly would be Yahweh. No one can stand above him. His power, his majesty, his love, his faithfulness are unmatched. All you got to do is look around you and see what he has created. The mountains, the sea, the beings in that creation. No one, nothing is greater than this powerful, loving God, Yahweh. And then we have a section in which the psalmist says, May God, you have made promises in creation and you have made some big promises to your servant David. David the king, the king of Israel, the second king, chosen to replace Saul, the first king, having a, being told that he's a man after God's own heart. And we see David do some incredible things and some really bad things, okay? But he's sort of set up as the model for the rest of the kings. And God makes some big promises to David, David, you're going to be the king of Israel, and on your throne, your sons are going to reign on that throne, here's the word, forever. That's a big word, isn't it? Your sons are going to reign on the throne of Israel forever. Okay, that's a promise of this covenant, love, faithful kind of God. That's what the psalmist says. Verse 33. This is God sort of speaking about David. But I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. You don't have to worry about this. It's never going to happen. And you hear all that, so this first half of Psalm 89, and you hear me setting it up, 
And maybe you're thinking, okay, that's great, but what does that have to do with me, right? Okay, God made some promises to a king who lived about 3,000 years ago, but that really doesn't have much effect on me, sort of around on the other side of the globe, 3,000 years later. Big deal. Here's why it's a big deal. Because the psalmist, up to that point, is sort of setting the table for what he's about to do. Right? So he's talked about, I'm going to worship God forever, this great Hesed, faithful God. And you can see that at work in creation. He's powerful. I mean, this God, this is a God who can do whatever he wants to do. And this God has been so faithful to Israel and its greatest King David and the line of David. And God has promised that his sons are going to be on the throne forever, this powerful, Hesed, faithful, loving God. Why does all that matter? It matters to the psalmist because everything is falling apart. Everything in the life of this psalmist seems as though it is disintegrating. Because there's been a, a powerful army that has come from the east. And before this one came, another one came and took away half our country. And now this other one has come, and this, this little remnant country that's left that still has a son in the line of David on the throne in Jerusalem, this army has come and invaded us and deposed the king and carted off a bunch of people. What about this? Hey, God. Faithful, covenant-loving God the one who promised that there would be a king in the line of David on the throne in Jerusalem forever. Where are you? What's going on, God? What's happening, faithful Yahweh? I, I promise to worship you forever. And everything is falling apart. This is how the psalmist describes it. Verse 38. But you, God, you have rejected, you have spurned, you have been angry with your anointed one, the king. You have renounced the covenant with your servant, and you have defiled his crown in the dust. You have broken through all his walls and reduced his strongholds to ruins. All who pass by have plundered him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. God, you... You promised. And now it's all in ruins. What are we supposed to do with this? How are we supposed to understand a God who makes all these promises and then everything just comes apart at the seams? Verse 49 sort of sums it up. Lord, and that's just the word for God. It's as if the psalmist can't even say Yahweh here. Lord, where is your former great Hesed? Where is your covenant love? Which in your faithfulness, same word, you swore to David. Where are you? What are you going 
to do about this? And it finishes up with that same kind of language. And then we come down to verse 52. And it feels like a little, a little tiny glimpse of that same kind of language that we felt in verses 1 and 2. Verse 52 says, Praise be to Yahweh forever. Amen and amen. Now, before we go too far with that verse, here's what I want you to notice. If you look at the very next words in your Bible, okay, it says book four, right? Psalms are divided up into five books. And these psalms were composed over dozens, hundreds of years by the people of Israel. And then someone, we don't know who, along the way, compiled them. They brought them all together into one big book, longest book in the Bible, right? 150 psalms, and they divided them among five different books. Now, it's not, you'd think, sort of 30, 30, 30. It's not that way. It's just sort of, it almost seems random. But Psalm 89 is the last book, last psalm in book three, because book four comes right next. And what we find is a statement very much like verse 52 at the end of each one of those books. The end of book one, end of book two, here at the end of book three. Now, we have to sort of look back at the Psalms and try to figure out how some of this worked. But the scholars are pretty much in agreement that when they were compiled, and see, this is all, God can work this way. In his inspiration, he can work this way. That the compiler usually added some kind of statement at the end of every book And that's verse 52. So it may well be that Psalm 89 ends with all the questions still hanging in the air. All those accusations, all those thoughts about where God is are still sort of just just echoing. That makes sense that even there we end with this word of praise. Praise be to the Lord forever and ever. Amen. Because that's the language of the people of God when they come together. But what does this psalm say to us? In the midst of a life that at times we say, God, you haven't given me more. You've given me less. Less than I expected. Less than I hoped for. Less life than I thought I was going to have. It says to me that God can handle our tough questions. That God really can take it when we bring our difficult questions to Him. You know, sometimes I think we're hesitant to ask God questions like the psalmist asks here. We sometimes pretend or at least sort of feel like God is... God's so fragile. Like if we asked him these really tough questions, he might just fall apart. So we're not going to take those questions to God because we probably shouldn't anyway. So let's don't do that. Let's just sort of tamp them down. Let's pretend like they're not there. Or we think that God is such an angry God that if we challenge him on this stuff, he might just strike us down in that moment. He might get so angry that he punishes us for even asking the question. And so again, what do we do? We just push the questions down because it's probably not right for us to even think this way. We ought to just pretend like everything's okay. But here, 
virtually right in the center of our Bible that we believe is inspired by God, right? Paul says to Timothy that it is God-breathed. And he's talking about the Old Testament when he says that. Right here in the middle of our Bible is the psalm that sets God up as this faithful God and then asks all these questions about where God is. Seems to me that God thought it was okay to ask these questions because they show up right here in the middle of his book. You know, I think there are times that we sometimes think, we look back on these biblical writers, oh, they lived, what, I don't know, 2,500 years ago? They probably fell for anything, right? They believed all kind of crazy stuff back then. They're not as sophisticated as we are. They didn't know what we know. They haven't been through the Enlightenment. They don't know all the information that we have at our fingertips that we can look stuff up. They, did, they didn't have the benefit of the science that we have. And all those things are fine. But these people were people just like we're people. And they grappled with the same kinds of questions that we do. It's clear to me that, that they struggled just like we do. They, they didn't just say, hey, you know what? We're, we're not, this is God. We're not going to talk about that. In fact, what we find is that there's a great tradition of this kind of language. I mean, when we talk about the Psalms, we tend to think Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I love Psalm 23. We, we tend to think of Psalm 41 as the deer pants for the water. That's how I want God. Psalm 100 is all about praising God. These are beautiful Psalms. But there's also all these Psalms that come to God with these questions that are really hard to grapple with. In fact, we might be tempted if we were thinking about, okay, we, we need a psalm for today's worship service. Uh, let's, let's do Psalm 89. Where are we going to read this morning from Psalm 189? Well, verses 1 and 2 look pretty good. Probably not going to get down to verse 38. Because we want psalms that make us feel secure. But there's so many that ask questions like this. And in fact, we have a whole book in the Bible that's called Lamentations. Complaints. Struggles with God. Filled with this kind of language. God can handle our tough questions. And there's the time to ask those questions. John Golden Gay, who's a, a great Old Testament scholar, as he talks about this psalm, sort of recounts the story that we find in a play called The Trial of God by Elie Wiesel, who many of you will know survived the Nazi concentration camps. And this play is, it's set 
in one of those concentration camps. And the leaders of the people gather and they put God on trial. And they recount all the the atrocities that they've experienced themselves, that they have witnessed among people that they love. They, They recount all that. And at the end, God is found guilty for doing nothing. And after the sentence, the conviction is laid out, there's this long silence. And then one of the elders among the people says it's time for evening prayers. And they pray the prayers that they have prayed every night for their whole lives. And it seems to me that's just where we ought to be. We ought to ask God these really, really hard questions and then pray the prayers that we've prayed our whole lives. Let's pray together. Our life sometimes is, our lives are just not easy. And sometimes there are things that we dreamed about that haven't happened and won't happen. And we just don't know what to do with it. And we wonder where you are in the midst of all that. And so God, we come to you, maybe even today, with some of these really hard questions challenges and we give them to you and even in the midst of our questions we bring you our faith because we know who you are and we pray it all in the name of Jesus amen I'll give you an opportunity to respond and just a minute, we're going to have a song and then communion, and just so you know, we're going to have a guest speaker for our communion. My dad's going to do that, so if you don't know him, some of you don't, he's going to be giving our meditation. But before we do that, we're going to sing our invitation, and if you thinking through this and see this powerful God, whose ultimate answer to all those questions is not necessarily the 613 commands that we see in the Old Testament, but the person of Jesus, and you recognize that it's time to respond to him in faith and repentance and baptism. We invite you to do that as we stand and sing our invitation. Let's stand together.